Roger, thank you so much for that prayer this morning. You know, when we work with our elders and deacons who come up and pray on Sunday mornings, one of the things we encourage them to do is to really see themselves as bringing all of us before the throne of God. And that's what we want to do when we pray, corporately pray as a congregation, to bring us all before the throne of God. And so this morning, I hope to bring you before the throne of God as we look at God's inerrant, infallible word this morning. I am preaching through the book of Titus. I just began last week, and we looked at verses 1 through 4 by way of introduction. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 5 through 9. The New Testament book of Titus, verses 5 through 9. And this morning, our subject is... A biblic- the office, the biblical office of elder. We're going to look at this this morning, and I think it's more important for us than maybe we realize. And so the Apostle Paul writing to Titus writes in verses 5 through 9, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, our first point this morning is instructions to Titus. The Apostle Paul leaves Titus in Crete to bring order to the island churches and appoint biblically qualified church leaders in every town. That's why Paul has left his good friend Titus. Last week we saw verse 4 to Titus, my true child in a common faith. He leaves him in Crete to bring order to the churches on that island and to appoint elders in every town. So, And I think this is important as we work through the book of Titus. There wasn't just one church in Crete. There were multiple churches. Evidently, when the Apostle Paul uh, made his missionary, one of his missionary journeys through there, established a number of churches on that island. Excuse me. And it was now up to Titus to make sure each of these churches had proper church leadership And we're doing things in a biblically orderly way. And so he says in verse 1, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. These churches had begun, but they needed someone to shepherd them, to guide them, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So they had discussed this before. There were some false teachings going on. Evidently, as we will work through the book of Titus, 
the Judaizers, also known as the circumcision party, had had a big influence in this area, and it was up to Titus and the elders that he would appoint to make sure they brought them back to biblical, sound doctrine, sound understanding. Very similar to what our missionaries tell us when they go into particular specific areas of the world. Whether they go in the Kora Valley or they go into Mozambique or whatever area they may go into, they find that there's often been syncretistic spiritism and syncretism, spiritism, animism, all kinds of false teaching there that they have to correct as they establish their church. Excuse me. We'll look at this more next week, but look at verses 10 and 11 real quick. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting, notice this, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. And when we come to chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Titus, help them to come back to Scripture. So he is to appoint elders in every town. Now, in the New Testament, as you come across the words pastor, elder, overseer, and bishop, they all are a reference to the same office. Excuse me. They are all a reference to the elder or elders, because most churches have more than one elder. They're all referring to the same thing. So a pastor, an elder, an overseer, a bishop are the very same office. They're not distinct offices. They're the very same office. They're just words used to describe different aspects of that one office. Let me take our church as an example. We have in our church nine elders. We have four vocational elders that we most often refer to as pastors. It is their occupation. It is their full-time responsibility. It is what they get paid for. We also have five non-vocational elders. It isn't their occupation, but nonetheless, they are equally with us, shepherds of the church. They have regular secular job responsibilities, and at the same time, they are shepherds of the church. But here's what's important for this morning. For all nine of us, the qualifications are exactly the same, and we are all equal biblically. So, I have the term senior pastor. In some churches, my position is called the lead pastor. But, That simply means I'm like the captain of the team. I'm the team leader. But I'm not higher than the other eight guys. We're all the same, and we all have to meet the same qualifications. So that's the office that we are talking about. We are 
in a God-ordained way to shepherd the church and to guard its teaching. Now, the form of church government that we have in our church is called elder-led congregational rule. Elder-led congregationalism or elder-led congregational rule. And what that means is the elders shepherd and lead the church, bring issues to the church, but the ultimate decision-making lies with the church as a whole. You play an extremely important responsibility in the life of this church. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. A few years ago, we strengthened, it's a word I like to use, strengthened our statement of faith. We made it even more in-depth to address a lot of the false teaching that is taking place in our culture, and we added even more scripture to it, to buttress it and fortress it. But when we finished it, almost two months in advance, we presented it to the congregation and gave you two months to take it home, to look it over, to ask us any questions that you may have, and then at our annual meeting, you voted to approve our strengthened statement of faith. Just a couple of years ago, we updated our con church constitution and bylaws. Same thing. The elders worked for a couple of years on that. It took a long time um, to bring it up to date and to make sure it was in agreement with everything we were currently doing as a church. Make sure nothing was unbiblical in it. And then we brought it to you, and we handed it out to you, and gave you a long period of time for you to look it over, to ask us questions, and then you voted on it. You made the final decision. That's what we mean by elder-led congregational rule. Well, in this section of scripture, we have the important non-negotiable qualifications for any man who would serve as a church elder. So what kind of man can serve as a church elder? Paul starts in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. This is, in essence, the most important qualification. It means that every man who would serve as an elder must be above reproach, and that simply means this. It means that no one can make a serious, moral, sinful accusation against them. It does not mean that we are perfect, because we are far from perfect. It does not mean that we are sinless. We sin just like you do. We struggle with sin every day just like you do. But it does mean that a man who would serve as elder can't have a serious accusation outstanding against him. For example, can't be an elder if people are saying, you know, he's an elder, but word is he has a horrible marriage. Or he's an elder, but he engages in unethical business practices. Or he's an elder, but man, does he have a hot temper. Okay, he's got to be above those things. He's got to be above reproach. In fact, and I think this is very important, above reproach is defined in the other qualifications. Let me say that again because it's important to this text. 
What it means to be above reproach is defined in the other qualifications. He goes on to say that he must be the husband of one wife. Now, of all of the qualifications found in the Bible for a deacon and an elder, this is one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood phrases. By the way, I just want to share with you too. This is an easy like cheat sheet for you for the future. Qualifications for deacons and elders are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The qualifications for an elder are repeated in Titus chapter 1. Those are the only places. Qualifications for deacons and elders are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Qualifications for an elder are repeated in Titus chapter 1. But it says here that he must be the husband of one wife. Let me tell you what it does not mean and then what it does mean. This is not talking about polygamy, someone having multiple wives. Obviously, the Bible says none of us should have multiple spouses. That's a qualification to be a Christian. Um, That applies to everybody. And actually, in this part, actually at this time in the Greco-Roman world, not everywhere, but in most places, polygamy was already outlawed. This does not mean that a man who wants to be an elder can't Let's say that his spouse has died and he's remarried but meets all the qualifications. This doesn't mean he can't be an elder because he's had more than one wife. That's not what it's saying. This doesn't mean that a single man can't be an elder. Yes, a single man can be an elder. Let me give you one great example. His name is the Apostle Paul. Okay? If a single man can't be an elder, then he couldn't be an elder. This has nothing to do. This is for those who are married, but a single man can also be a biblical elder. And the way this is most often misunderstood, and a lot of pastors preach it this way, and I think it's unfortunate. This has not, and not a reference to divorce. This is not saying that an elder can't be divorced. Now, divorce is a whole separate subject. All I'm saying to you, all I'm saying to you is that this is not what that is saying. This has actually nothing to do with divorce. So what does it mean? The husband of one wife, and this is a very important qualification, means that if an elder is married, he must be a one-woman man. He must have single-minded heart and devotion to his wife and his wife alone. So an elder cannot be a man who's flirtatious. He cannot be a man who has inappropriate behavior toward other women. Al Mohler, I was reading his comments on this, He said, this has nothing to do with divorce, but it's extremely important. He said, what it means is this. When you get married, you enter into a covenant relationship, a covenant commitment with your wife. So act like it. Live like it. 
John MacArthur says this. He says, a man could be married to the same woman for 40 years and not be a one-woman man. He's got wandering eyes. He's got lust in his heart. He's not qualified to be an elder. So this is important. He must be a one-woman man totally committed to his marriage relationship. Then it says, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Actually, children here is a reference to older children. In fact, the word for children here in verse 6 is the same word that Paul uses in verse 4 when he says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Obviously, Titus was a man. So it's saying as his children get older, he should have exhibited that he has done everything he can to share the gospel with his children to lead them to a saving faith in Christ and to help them to live according to the teachings and principles of Scripture. Now, again, this does not mean that he has perfect children or that pastors and elders' kids never misbehave. That is a burden that has been placed on way too many pastors in the past. It's not what it's saying. It's that he has done everything he can to lead them to faith in Christ and to live out their faith in Christ. For example, there may be a man who has five children and four of his children know Christ as Savior. They love the Lord. They're living for the Lord, but one of them has wandered away from the faith, made a decision not to follow. That doesn't disqualify him. However, if a man has five children, they've all rejected the gospel, and they're all living for the world, he really shouldn't be an elder. That's what it's saying. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Then in verse 7, it says, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must continue to be So it's emphasized twice. Isn't that interesting in the qualifications? Twice it says he must be above reproach. And again, that's defined in the qualifications that he's about to give. But that's how important it is to be above reproach. And he says he's God's steward. Again, in the Greco-Roman world, it was not unusual for a military officer or for a politician to have a steward who oversaw his house. They would tend to seeing the crops were planted and harvested. They would manage the affairs of the household. They would see that any household repairs were done. They were the manager of the house. And what he's saying is an elder is a steward of the house of God. That he should make sure that we are following the teachings of the word of God. That people are striving to live in accordance with the word of God. God has placed him as a steward over his church. And then I'm going to go through some of these quickly. I think a lot of them are self-evident, but he said he must not be arrogant. There's no place for an elder to be arrogant and prideful, full of himself. 
He must not be quick-tempered. Let's be honest this morning. There are some Christian men who have anger issues. Serious anger issues. And no one knows that better than their wife does. Until that is dealt with in their lives, they shouldn't be an elder. He must not be a drunkard. That simply means he must not be controlled by wine. Wine must never overtake him. Alcohol must never overtake him. And here's the thought. The thought is that an elder at all times, all times, must be sober-minded and a clear thinker so that he can apply the principles of God's word to every situation. That's the thought. Then it said he must not be violent. In some translations, it says he must not be pugnacious. It's interesting reading about this. Evidently, at this time in history, it was not uncommon for men to settle disputes by just going outside and duking it out. Fist fights. Well, obviously, hopefully, in the church today, that's not how we settle our disputes. But it also means this. It means this, and this is important for an elder. He must not be a person who engages in hostile, emotional arguments and uses words that cut and hurt other people. Okay, he must not engage in hostile, emotional arguments and use words that cut and hurt other people. He must not be greedy, excuse me, greedy for gain. He must not be a lover of money. Throughout the history of the church, this is interesting, I could spend a lot of time on this, I won't. Throughout the history of the church, there has always been men who have seen, especially the vocational office of pastor, as a pretty good job hey, that's a good job, I can make some decent money, I think I'm going to do that. And that's not a reason to become a pastor. They're not to be greedy for gain. He must be, excuse me, hospitable. Now, this is also often misunderstood. Hospitable here does not mean he has to have people into his home all the time. Nothing wrong with that, that can be a really good thing. But that's not what the word means. Hospitable means that he is ready to be kind and generous to whomever he meets. Could be a stranger. Could be someone in the church. They're hurting and they need something and he helps to make sure they get it. There's someone who's going through a struggle and he says, let's have coffee together. Let's go out to lunch together. Let's meet together. He's always ready to do that. He is hospitable. He must be a lover of good. He loves what's good. He looks at our culture. He looks at our society. He says, I, I so desire what is good. It's Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Think about such things. That's what an elder is supposed to do. He's to love good things, good things that please the Lord. Then it says he must be self-controlled. This is another very important one. 
Self-control is really interesting here. It means this. If you are in a group of people and there is a hostile, angry argument, the elder must be the man that stays calm. He must be the sensible one. He must be above those things. He must be the say that says, he must be the person that says, okay, everybody, let's calm down. Let's try to look at both sides of this issue. But let's look at this in a reasonable, rational, biblical way. Self-control is very important for a pastor because it also means this. That when he is attacked, he remains calm. Unfortunately, and every single pastor goes through this, from his own church, pastors get criticized. And sometimes they get very harshly criticized. And they can't retaliate. They can't. And they have to remain calm. It says he must be upright. Some translations have he must be just. He is always looking for what is fair and right. If there is some kind of dispute, some kind of disagreement, he is thinking, okay, let's be just and fair to everybody in this particular situation. Let's do what's right for the whole church as a, for the church as a whole. Let's take all these different thoughts into consideration and come to a, a good and biblical conclusion. He must be holy. He must be striving to live a holy life before God. Again, not perfect, excuse me, not perfect, not sinless, but striving to live a holy life. Holy, as you may know, means separated unto the Lord. He is pursuing Christ with all of his heart. And then he must be disciplined. Disciplined. Discipline is slightly different than self-controlled. It means this. He disciplines himself to live a godly life. He disciplines himself to do careful, in-depth study of the word of God. He disciplines himself to pray. He disciplines himself to find that delicate but important balance between church life and his home life, between addressing family issues and giving himself to people at the church. He's disciplined as he seeks to live a godly life. If there is one term that I would use overall to describe what an elder should be, it would be that title of of Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Remember, we thought that book was so important a few years ago, we gave all of our families free copies of it. And that's what we should be, gentle and lowly, because that's the self-description that Christ used of himself. That's what every elder should strive for. But there's one more qualification, and this pertains to the Word of God. Our second point is the elder in the Word of God. One of the primary responsibilities of a biblical church elder is to protect the church from false teaching. You think elder, you think protect us. You think elder, you think protect us. In verse 9, it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder, if any man is to be an elder, 
he must be able to go down our statement of faith, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of God the Father, the doctrine of God the Son, the doctrine of God the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, etc. He must be able to go down those essential teachings of the Christian faith and say, I hold to these without wavering in any way. I hold to these. And not only must he be able to say, I hold to these, I do not waver one bit, but he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he must teach the essential truths, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith and rebuke those who in any way might try to bring false teaching into our church. So that's what he is to do. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says that an elder must be able to teach. This is one of the qualifications that is different from a deacon to an elder. Most of the qualifications are the same for both offices. But a deacon doesn't have to have the gift of teaching. Many deacons do have the gift of teaching, but they can be a deacon and not have the gift of teaching. An elder has to have the gift of teaching. He must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. It's interesting when the Apostle Paul was in Miletus, he called for the Ephesian elders, wanted to give them a farewell sermon in essence. And it's so passionate and so strong. He says, I have, I have preached to you the whole counsel of God. I've given my heart, my life to you. And then in Acts 20, verses 28 through 31, and I think this is so good. This is what he says to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That's it. That's verse 9. Three years Paul spent teaching them, teaching them, teaching the people in Ephesus. That's why I said last week that I feel so strongly about expositional preaching and expositional preaching through entire books of the Bible. We, we need to teach you. We need to teach ourselves the word of God carefully with great instruction. And then if anyone departs from that, to deal with them. So interesting, verse 29, I know. After three years teaching there, he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And this is the scary part. And from among your own selves, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is so important. I've said this to our deacons. In fact, I just said it this week at a meeting because we were dealing with a very similar issue. 
And I say it to our elders, if you ever start to doubt or have misgivings about the essential, about the word of God or about the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, step aside. Step aside. Go do something else. You can't be an elder. You can't be a deacon. And folks, this happens. I've read story after story over the years of pastors. Over the course of their pastorate, they begin to doubt some of the essential truths of the faith. Boy, is this really the word of God infallible and inerrant? Do I really believe that Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead? And all of a sudden, their congregations notice that their preaching starts to change. It starts to waver. Let me tell you, folks, if you ever see one of the elders, or if you're in another church and you see an elder start to waver from the essential truths of the faith, get them out of the pulpit. Get them out of the pulpit. Okay? They can't be there. Give them time off. Maybe they need to do something completely different. But an elder, a deacon, they have to believe this all with all of their heart. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Well, I want to close this message by addressing a controversy. Excuse me. And issuing a challenge to all of us. First, a controversy. I bring this up not just to be controversial, because, but because I think this is important for you to know. And you will hear about it from time to time. And that controversy is this. The question often comes up, can a woman serve in the role of biblical elder? Can a woman serve in the role of biblical elder? And the position of our church, which we believe to be the biblical position, is that the answer is no, she cannot. We believe that the office of elder, overseer, pastor, bishop, is an office that God, in his wisdom, in his design, has given just to men. Just to men. Every pronoun in here, in these qualifications, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, are all masculine. Paul and others always appointed male elders. Some people say, well, that was just their culture. No, it's not just their culture. That's how you fall into bad interpretation. It really didn't have anything to do with their culture. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, what Paul means by that, and I remember the late theologian Homer Kent, I read he had material on this years ago, help me with this. It means when it comes to doctrinal matters, when it comes to deciding we are going to stand for the word of God and here are the essential truths of the Christian faith, That is a responsibility that God has given to male elders in the church. Now, it doesn't mean women are less equal. It doesn't mean they're less gifted. I will say to you without apology, there are some women I know who are probably better Bible teachers than I am. 
But God's design is that this particular role is a role that is designed for men only. In February, in February of this year, the Southern Baptist Convention made national headlines because they removed from their convention five churches because they had appointed female elders, female pastors. One of those churches was Saddleback Church, who for many years has had a very famous pastor. He's just recently retired, but that's Rick Warren. And Rick Warren thinks it is okay to ordain women to pastoral ministry. And so there was this very significant, contentious disagreement. And his church, along with four others, were actually formally voted on and removed from the convention over this issue. Because the Baptist faith and message, which is their statement of faith, does not allow for women to serve in the role of elder. That's the controversy. Now I want to give a challenge to all of us. The qualification for elders should generally be something that all faithful Christians strive for. So don't read through this and say, oh, I'm not going to be an elder. No. These are good qualifications. These are qualifications that all of us should desire and strive for. Paul is simply saying for the actual role of elder, if you're not doing these things, you can't even be there. You can't serve in this position. So when you look at these, I mean, I'm hoping that all of you want to be above reproach. I'm hoping that all of you want to be totally devoted to your wife and totally devoted to your husband. I pray that all of you will want to raise your children to believe the gospel and to live for Christ, that you'll all want to be good, hospitable, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. I hope all of you want to be that. So don't read this and say, that doesn't apply to me. It does. It applies to all of us. So may God help us to live out these things. And one other quick note, and that is this. For you young men that are out here, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 it says, if a young man desires to be an elder, it is a good thing. It is a good thing for a young man to desire to possibly be an elder someday. So live out these things. Live out these things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great wisdom. Thank you for providing spiritual, moral, and ethical requirements for those who lead your churches. May you help all elders to be examples of Christ-likeness to your people and help all of us to strive for the godly characteristics of a biblical elder. In Jesus' name, amen.